Jesus don't cry You can lie on it, on it You can combine anything you want I'll be around You write about the stars Each one is a setting sun Hey. Hey, Michael. How are you? Okay. How you doing? I'm doing all right. That's my default response. All right. Yeah. Not everything is right, but I say all right because it's, I don't know if I say, you can say okay. You can say all right. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you say great or fantastic, I immediately judge you. I think that no. I think no, you're you're ignoring the negative when, things in your life. And if you say horrible, you're being selfish, because yeah. it, because you always have something that's okay in your life if you focus on it. If you, so, it's like if you if you say anything other than something neutral, I, to me, I automatically have a snap judgment. But then I try to walk myself back from the snap judgment. Say they're just doing. Maybe they really had a great morning. Okay. <laughs> When was the last time it was acceptable to say you were doing great? Pre-Trump. Pre-Trump. Okay. 2015? So any time during 2016, unacceptable. Well, I guess he he was elected in the end. November of 2016. So yeah. sometime, I guess, in the summer of 2016, you could still be like, I'm I'm great. Yeah. But after that, if you say I'm great, you're either selfish delusional or really just had an exceptionally good moment right before someone asked you yeah what do you think i mean i'd agree to a point i i would agree with that um yeah when you ask someone how they're doing what goes through your mind like you wouldn't you want to get to the real conversation you're just like this is just this is the meaningless stuff yeah i mean i think we're all i mean i live in a bubble for the most part and most people are impacted to varying degrees by, you know, uh, the, the deteriorating quality of life. Um, but, uh, I do think, you know, people have their, their own personal dramas. Like a friend of mine is getting heart surgery right now. So if he comes out of it and like, you know, it's like, it's going to make him a lot stronger theoretically, but like if he comes out of it and successful surgery, then for me, once I get that news today, I'll be doing great. Like I'm anxious right now. Yeah. yeah. I thought you were going to say, if he says I'm great, when you ask him how he's doing after the surgery, you won't be judgmental. <laughs> well, I don't think I, yes, I won't oh, be. judgmental. Him. It's like a three month recovery and just, you know, it's not going to be an immediate, like things are great kind of thing. It will be an immediate sense of relief right, for those around him. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Heart surgery. Yeah. Yeah, so I would just say personal, personal sort of dramas and highs and lows still exist and are acceptable. If if they're you know on that on that scale, I think it's acceptable. But if it's like you got a raise or something, then maybe it's better to keep that to yourself. It's interesting. I agree. If you got a raise, what about all the people that didn't? Yeah. And if you if you're like proud to assert your raise to everyone you know, you're a little myopic. Need some glasses. Okay. Yeah. Have you done a second interview with others before this? Yes. Okay, good. A couple. 
But right. um, I my initial thought was I was going to try to like go through the second round of reach out to everybody, and then I realized I didn't want to do that because mm-hmm. I think I'd gotten you know to a good point with a lot of the interviews. But also, like, this is not a organized project in the sense of I, I need to do something every six years or, you know, like yeah. ma- make some sort of formal document at the end of 20 years. This is just uh, reaching out and connecting or or attempting to connect <laughs> uh, through through the Zoom. Just before we start, what is that kind of pot behind be, your back right? Oh, this corner. Yeah. What is that? This, this is... Um, is it a teapot? Keep, keep mosquitoes away. What? To keep mosquitoes away. Is it a candle? Um, it's one of these, like, I don't know. I don't know about this. Well, you don't have to use it. <laughs> no. Um, I... There are mosquitoes sometimes, so I yeah. did bring it over in the summer when there were more mosquitoes, because yeah. um, I am in the garage slash office. But, uh, yeah, well, so you're doing, you, you, I don't remember what you said. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> After all that, I don't even know what you said. Um, what drew you to books when you were a young child? I think I learned to read somewhere probably between like kindergarten and first grade. And I have memories of this, but the um, the legend around my childhood reading was that I was convinced that I only had the power to read if I was making physical contact with my mom. So like oh. we'd sit on the couch and I think she eventually like, you know, had to wean me off of this. Basically. It was just like, I also was a late thumb sucker. Like I had a callus on my thumb into elementary school from sucking my thumb. So I think that this probably was not like healthy behavior, but reading was social for me uh, at, yeah. at the beginning. Yeah. And Eventually, I just like having an older brother. I mean, maybe you can identify with this. Like you're trying to keep up and I knew he was reading and he was reading like chapter books and I wanted to start reading chapter books. And then I remember like, I think in second grade, I like just devoured all these pirate chapter books that we had in our classroom that were, Mm. I remember them being great. You know, it's cool to be able to read about pirates when you're that young. Yeah, it's Um, always cool to read about pirates as long as they're not raping. I I think I present as being extroverted, but I am introverted in terms of how I live. Yeah, and, I, and I've known that. I've known that about you. Yeah. I mean, you present differently in different situations, I would yeah. say. Well, that's, then, that's everybody, but you maybe a little more. Yeah. And, and there are certain like times in my life where, um, for example, like I worked at a sleepaway summer camp all through college. Um where I wouldn't open a book the whole summer because it was just like there was just too much socializing, you know, at night and during the day. And um, so, I, I, you know, I will respond positively to certain kinds of social environments. But like when life is just normal life, you know, in quotes, um, reading has always been like a daily habit ever since I uh, often in the mornings as a kid, I would read first thing in the morning for like an hour. And this is before, of course, I was a coffee drinker. Now it's like. I might read in bed for 10 minutes and then be like, I really, I'd enjoy this more if I had coffee. But then of course you make the coffee and you're sidetracked by all the other stuff you should be doing. The moment you wake up is a great time to read. It's really hard when you have a child to do that. I bet. Yeah. So that doesn't happen anymore. 
Um, and ever, it never really happened though. I remember you always could do that. Yeah. Which is, which is, a, I think, a superpower because there's, a, there's a level of like both haziness when you enter consciousness in the morning and a level of clarity. Like you can snap yourself into a, someone else's mind. If, if reading is getting into someone else's mind. Yeah. Which it's it a is. good time. Yeah. It's like yeah, another yeah. dream state. Yeah. And same, same deal with, with creative work, with writing it has always been for me, the best, the, like the most fruitful period of the day. I know a lot of people and I've been that person under like duress under deadline, um, will get good work done at night. But for me, that's a much sloppier mental state. And these days I, you know, try to go to bed by like 1030. So mm-hmm. late night is anything after that. We're getting, um, we're getting, we're getting middle aged, quote unquote. Yeah. And it's winter time too, which it makes it easier to go to bed earlier. Of course. You're in so, Portland, Oregon. Yeah, still in Portland. You like where you're living and you like the home that you're living in? Yeah, feel very lucky to to have a home with my partner and our dog. Um, and we live on a busy street, which it's not the source of too much anxiety, but it's only anxiety with our dog, you know, that if um, he were to get out. And in fact, our neighbors lost their dog like oh. a month or two ago. Um, oh. Like it. it the door was ajar and it ran out into the, I mean, it's like one of these roads, it's four lanes and traffic moves about 40 miles an hour. You can't, you can't. Yeah. Yeah. So how old is Buster? Do you know? Yeah. We think he's about 10, but he hasn't specified. No, Christine. You missed my birthday again. Well, Christine adopted him in 2013. So, uh, and he was probably seven months old between seven months to two years. I think based on how he's doing now, hopefully he was closer to seven months because he's a very youthful 10 um, and still does all the crazy physical stuff uh, that he's always done. That's great. He does this thing. He's like our our, uh, jester, you know, the house jester, uh, because he like knows how to make us laugh. But he he tucks his... Because you wear a uniform, you put, you got a costume. (laughs) And so you said, you are now the jester. Look at you. Uh, no, but he does this thing when he gets excited where he like tucks his butt kind of and scoots around. Like he's not like, I, that's going to sound like he's like, like moving it around on the ground. No, it's like, it's just closer to the ground. Oh, and okay. He like runs around in circles around the house with like his butt low to the ground, which yeah, is different yeah. than how he like races around outside. He'll do it yeah, outside yeah. too, but that never ceases to uh, entertain us. Sounds entertaining. And you never know when it's going to happen or is it a certain time every day? No. And like sometimes we'll come in from often it's on windy days, like the wind gets in real. Oh, yeah. Piled up. Um, I read I read something about I think Norway and the wind. They have a word for a type of like spiritual practice of experiencing wind as a way of like wellness. I hate wind, to be honest, except back when I taught sailing at summer camp. You need wind then. Wind was good then, but wind and cold is 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 a bad combo. Wind and warmth is nice. Breeze, yeah. we call that. We usually call that breeze. Yeah, but even then, like we go to we, the last couple summers, we've gone down to the the dunes on like the southern Oregon coast, and it's often windy there. And then you're getting like it's like the air temperature is all right, but you're getting like sand blown yeah. into your eyes. Yeah, know, wind is just kind of brutal. It's, if you've lived in San Francisco, you don't like wind either. I mean, because yeah. wind is always chilling you. It's always too too cold. You have, we have, yeah. We've we've lived in San Francisco at the same time, which is basically where we became closer friends. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been a long time. You left in 2000. 
2007. Yeah, summer of 2007. Yeah, and in wow. fact, I think my memory is my last full day there because I, I moved from there to Central America to, uh, was that you gave me a ride to the Oakland airport at like midnight. I think I was flying. I had like a red eye connection. I want to say through Houston. And <clears throat> we played tennis for one last time. I remember and that. I had like a perfect set. You played so well. We played in the Presidio. That might be the last time I played tennis at that level. And no, no, not might. It is definitely the last you time. You played at a professional level for about 40 minutes. <laughs> you were you were Michael Chang on the court. You were getting everything. Everything yeah. was right over the net, right over the tape. Just barely. I mean, I couldn't. It was it was horrible for me. Yeah. Because we had been so competitive. Uh, both good athletes and younger brothers, and 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 we've been so competitive playing tennis off and on for a couple of years there. And then the last set, it was like I had no hope. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't and, I don't know what to make of it. I did bring my tennis racket down to Nicaragua, and I didn't realize he was just making fun of me in the moment. But I asked a guy I'd met early on, who I ended up being roommates with, if there was any like public tennis court. You know, this is like three days into my time there. Yeah. And he like drew on my like little tourist map. He's like, oh yeah, there's a tennis court here. And it was like this abandoned court with weeds oh. coming up through the cracks. And, oh, but no, it wasn't, yeah. it had been a tennis court, but he oh. was, who is, who is this American dipshit that like thinks that there's <laughs> a public court in the second poorest country in the Western hemisphere? Yeah, there, there are private courts, I'm sure. Oh yeah. There's, there's one up on the hill there on the mountain yeah. hidden away. Well, um, no net. That makes it tough. Yeah, so I didn't play there. Here's an idea. You could have just, when you were feeling low during that year, because you were solo there, and you were writing a novel, right? Yeah. You were, when you were feeling low and your novel was not flowing, and and, and you were just like, I don't want to go to the bar again. Uh, you could have gone to the test court, and you just replayed the 40 minutes where you kicked my ass. Just on the court by yourself with no I net. I played basketball down there pretty regularly. Which was hot, but like no one is very tall in you know Latin America. And Um, for our listeners, that's better for you. Yeah, I'm smaller, so I think like I didn't embarrass myself. That's good. Were there nets on the on the rim? Probably not. I would think not, but it's so sad. I can't play basketball with no net. I mean, if there's a chain, I can deal with it. You can't tell if it went in. You know? (laughs) Yeah, people are like that didn't go in. You're like, I thought it went in. then that's a big part of basketball especially if you were ever a good shooter uh-huh. the net is your you aim at it it's at your it. prize it's yeah. your it's it's the oral equivalent of a gift on yep. the basketball court the swish sound yeah. anyway you can lie on me honey you can combine anything you want well, another trip we went on was driving you. Um, I drove with you up. Yeah, I picked you up in San Francisco. You drove up to San Francisco from Santa Barbara. Yeah. Yeah. That was, so that would have been March 2014. March um, 2014. Okay. Yeah. And uh, that was a few weeks before my mom died. She had been, at that point, she had been basically diagnosed with terminal cancer there was still a tiny chance it was pneumonia, but it seemed she didn't think it was. And none of the doctors thought it was that. And they had been on vacation as they often, they often spent time in the winter in Santa Barbara. And so I got them on a plane, my folks, my parents, um, 
And it was like the, maybe one of the last days she was strong enough for them to even let her on a flight. I remember being nervous that they were going to like flag her Mm. going through security as being like a a health risk. Mm. Um, And at that point I then had to go back and pack up because she got sick very rapidly and I had to pack up their house and I had accepted this as being like a way of helping. And yeah, so I packed up their house, but I wanted uh, some help and some company on the trip up. So I think I dropped them off and then like that same day packed the house up and then drove up to San Francisco the next day Mm. and picked you up and you did a lot of the driving because I was really worn out. Totally. Um, And we spent the night somewhere around Reading, I want to say. That's vaguely um, familiar. One of those, but one it of those weird... right before you hit the mountains on I five. Yeah, I remember the meal we had. We we were at a little like diner. Oh place. yeah, the Willows. Yeah. yeah, that was a place my parents like told me I should stop years before. Like that, that was a just this like greasy spoon. And in fact, yeah. I have a very clear memory. This was early on in the Warriors. Yeah. Uh, we listened on the radio or something at our table. I think so. To the end of the Warriors Blazers game, and I'm sh- so we could find out what date this was if we look <laughs> at the NBA, you know, like scoreboard from March. Yeah, 20th. I remember. But we I remember were Clay listening. Thompson, and I didn't even really know who he was, but I remember him hitting like a three or a couple threes at the end of the game, and the Warriors winning and being really annoyed with you because <laughs> <laughs> you're like a Celtics fan, and then you were like. Like you're not allowed. I to did. Be I did not. Fan. I did not flop over to becoming like a diehard Warriors fan the way some people might have. I did not. I did not. I enjoyed. I enjoyed them as a my Western Conference team. Yeah, and you I were a diehard Blazers. I think you're allowed one team in every sport. Long story short, I never stopped obsessing about the Celtics, loving the Celtics. 2007 okay. was Still, as we believe. That was my last year. Yeah, yeah, so the We Believe team, I mean, it was it was so much fun to watch yeah. that team. And then, so I was like, okay, this is fun. I'm not going to pretend this is my team, but I'm going to yeah. enjoy this without feeling guilty or something. Yeah, I just uh, want to point out, it's interesting that we have very easily segued from the narrative of driving up together, time of, you know, like real stress and, and right. grief for me, to sports. It's very. It's, it, it's easy. Even though to I, do I don't that. consider either one of us like your typical like dude. Chuck? No. Um, yeah, sports is always an easy topic. Well, it is because it's simpler. Uh, but the 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 real feeling I had during that trip was I want to be there for my friend, and I'm really touched that he's able to let me join him on this trip back to his childhood home where his mom is dying and um and i don't know the experience of losing a parent uh i know the experience of losing my aunt but at that point i was not really close with her so i'm curious what grief has been like for you and what the process of losing your mom was like and now recently your dad um I mean, it's it's ongoing, you know, and I I think this year, so my dad died at the end of June, so we're, we'll be coming up on six months at the end of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but like getting through this holiday season, I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but I felt his absence a lot more than maybe I anticipated because he had, he also died of cancer, but it was a much longer illness and he was in his 80s versus my mom dying at 70. 
And, you know, up until the year she died, she was really active. And the assumption in our family was that she would outlive my dad Mm. Uh, by like, not by like a year or two, but by like a, it just seemed like we all sort of assumed he would go and then she'd be around for like another decade or something like that. You and your brother had made a bet. (laughs) No, I mean, I think she thought it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because my dad's diet was never great. He ate like a lot of meat and didn't left to his own devices, never ate vegetables, never drank mm. water, mm. had like kidney stones, mm. you know, like all like the basic, like, but, you know, take care of your body stuff. She was really good at. And he, he was, he exercised, but he, you know, the other stuff, like, I'm serious. He never drank water. What did he, he drink? He drank coffee and then he drank wine. That's it. That's it. What was he Roman? <laughs> no, I mean, he would have like, two maybe three cups of coffee a day yeah maybe no a half, juice a half glass no not usually like so he was constantly dehydrated yeah that's why he got kidney stones i have some really good memories early in the pandemic before he got sick um we would meet at this uh this graveyard <laughs> uh to walk because like you know i i i remain pretty cautious around pandemic stuff but especially yeah. early on it was like going to walking on sidewalks was not particularly pleasant and he lived in a pretty dense part of town um densely populated and um and then the parks also everybody was in parks and it just was like if we're gonna social distance the two of us um going to this cemetery up in the hills was perfect because there were these wide roads like no traffic very few other people walking but what developed was and maybe this was a sign of his illness, but also it was, he just was constantly like really caffeinated um, was that he often needed to pee in the middle of these walks. So we'd be in like a cemetery and then he would just kind of like, sometimes it was, I mean, it was hilarious. And like, I'm very glad for these memories because he was like really bold about it and would just like kind of stand at the edge of the cemetery and kind of pee, not go into the woods, but just kind of like, pee at the edge of the woods and one time it was just like a bush and we were up at like the entrance and he was just <laughs> <laughs> and he's like people aren't gonna get on my case i'm 80 years old you know at that time yeah it was funny so so yeah so we're going uh christine and i and buster are going down to bend where my brother and my niece live uh this weekend and we're doing like a combo thanksgiving christmas celebration and um nice. Yeah, I'm glad we're doing that. Um, I think for my niece, it's a, you know, it's a big deal to like have some continuity with family traditions. Like we spent, we spent three days together around this time last year with my dad. Um, just like the, 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 the very like nuclear family. Um, Mm -hmm. and, but it's like you have to, you know, I guess I've been doing this for a number of years now because my mom was the one who organized a lot of family stuff. But now in particular, it's like you, there's just an awareness of like, if you don't make any effort, then things just are not going to happen. And then there's going to be the, the sense of loss. I think is compounded if, if you kind of aren't, you know, intentional about trying to, to prioritize uh, this kind of thing. So. Agree. I definitely agree. It's um, Thanksgiving growing up was a big deal to me because it was a family time and family was always complicated for me because my parents both moved away from where they 
grew up. And then after their divorce, you know, my dad had his sister nearby. Um, and so my aunt Peg was a part of my, my life growing up, which was great. But other than her, there was no family anywhere near us. Um, and having a fractured family to begin with going back and forth from my mom and dad's house. And then, you know, having a stepmom for seven years and then not, you know, uh, there was, there was always this sense of what you're describing. If you're not intentional about connecting to family, then it becomes this absence. Yeah. And it's painful. It's lonely. It's sad. It's, it's, uh, it, it, it makes, I mean, we're always comparing ourselves, I think, to other situations or, or to what we imagine should happen or what most people, you know, and, and Rebel Harmony's in kindergarten, you know, and it was great. It was Generations Day uh, before Thanksgiving. And so people could bring in a, a grandparent or an older family uh, relative or family friend mm-hmm. uh, to come in. And uh, that wasn't going to happen. Uh, we hadn't arranged. My mom hasn't come out here for Thanksgiving. Um uh, she, she has things even with my brother's, uh, wife's family. Um, and I was a part of that once or twice a while back, but traveling across the country on Thanksgiving was not something I was going to do very much. And understandable. Yeah. And so Thanksgiving growing up, it was this thing where we would, we would take the train from, um, Boston down to New Jersey, the Amtrak, get the 6 a.m. Amtrak and get to New Jersey at like noon or so. And we'd have, uh, that would happen half the time, half of the Thanksgivings growing up. And I loved it. I loved that train ride and I loved being around my mom's side of the family that was more, more cousins and there was, there was more energy and there was, it was not just her mom and dad who my grandmother had a very strict, uh, kind of neurotic, uh, energy. So being in that home where my mom grew up was, was, I loved seeing my, grandfather and my grandmother but it was not relaxing yeah there was an agenda always to the hour everything was stressful my mom was stressed it was not relaxing so being so being able to be around the sort of looser members of my mom's family was nice every thanksgiving and then sometimes my dad uh with my dad and then my aunt peg and and jerry her partner and those were good memories too so not having that here has been hard it was really hard at first for me and uh and then i felt really sad for rebel harmony that she was not going to have a grandparent and a lot of people might have grandparents there and she was talking i i was overhearing her after school when i picked her up she was talking to another kindergartner who was talking to a third grader and they're and they're just sitting coloring and the the other kindergartner is saying i'm not going to have anyone at generations day for the pancake breakfast and can, can I sit with you to the third grader you know mm-hmm. and I wanted to protect her from feeling that sadness and so I was like I, we'll, we'll just go on an adventure you won't go to class for that half day Wednesday and, and we went took a ferry to San Francisco and uh they did we did the trolley and stuff and how oh, fun it was fun um it was exhausting but it was fun but but I but that feeling of wanting to protect her from that sadness. Yeah. And I think that sadness is happens to so many people around Thanksgiving and around the holidays because of who's not there. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's always 
it's weird because it feels like there's this gauntlet to sort of to negotiate and navigate and and then it's over and there's usually like a couple of good things that come of like all these efforts but it's also like you don't have to do it you know like the awareness that other people are doing it it's just interesting how human nature works where like there's a sense of pressure to do your own version of what everybody else is doing uh, Mm -hmm. to a degree like I don't know I um I sort of semi-deliberately I'm going to be working over Christmas uh, with a, a, a deadline, you know, for early January. Like it kind of just worked out that way, but I'm glad to have the distraction, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to lean on that um, and, and not feel like undue pressure to follow over myself and be like, well, first Christmas without my dad, like, you know, got to honor him in all these ways or something. Um, so that makes sense. Yeah. What was Christmas like in your in your home growing up? What are some memories you have of your parents and your brother and and maybe any other family that was part of it? My parents uh bought a cottage in western Massachusetts in like the early mid 70s and um you were in New York. Yeah, they were living I'm in forgetting you lived in New York before yeah. then. Yeah, 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 I was in New York. Oh my gosh. So we had this we I mean it was so lucky. I mean, my childhood like you know, allowed for a lot of time in what we called the country. You know, it was like fairly rural, but like not western United States rural, but we'd go up to this like, you know, this kind of cozy house um that What um, town? Monterey. It's near Great Barrington. Great Barrington. Yeah, yeah. yeah so like real West. Berkshires. Yeah, Berkshires. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were up on this hill and they had, like <laughs> there was a garage at the bottom of the hill because it was steep. And um, just to give you a sense of how steep it was, like there was this cautionary tale, like our bikes, like, you know, when I learned, once I learned to ride a bike, our bike stayed in that garage at the bottom of the hill. We were not allowed to bike down it because like a teenager who'd come to like do help out with some yard work or something had once tried to bike down it and wiped out and like was like biking, I think with no shirt on and just like took off like all sorts of skin kind of thing. So we would hear that story. My parents love to tell cautionary tales. like <laughs> So it was like every year we'd be a year older and like a little more into taking risks. Um, one time I did sled down that front hill after an ice, like freezing rain had frozen like this crust on the snow and I like intentionally like I I think it looked like I slipped but I wanted to go and there were all these like big trees at the bottom so I barely missed one and you know whizzing down like probably backwards um so yeah we're at the top of this hill and uh yeah we go up there I think Christmas almost always was up there and sometime early in childhood like when I was probably five or six we started, I I don't think it was before then, because I probably didn't have the patience for it, but we started this tradition of reading the entirety of A Child's Christmas in Wales, Dylan Thomas's. Oh. Uh, it's like a, a long sh- short story slash memoir, mm-hmm. but like it's um, published as a standalone book. The edition we had, um, I actually just... Um, sent one a copy to friends of mine who are having a child uh next month um but it's got these great illustrations and it's like it would take like an hour to read and we had to get through it before we were allowed to open any gifts 
And as we got older, it became a thing that I think I appreciated more and more. And in fact, a year ago this time, you know, we were with my dad and he read the whole thing to Finley, my niece. Beautiful. It was like a reminder. I think my brother has some recordings of it, but like my dad was a fantastic reader. You know, as somebody who, you know, I've published a book, I've given, I don't know how many readings. I like to think that I know how to like be on stage and like, you know, command an audience, if you will. But like my dad dying of pancreatic cancer last December still was a better reader than I'll probably ever be. Like just, you know, without being like cheesy, he could really ham it up. Good. I guess hamming it up. That's nice. He could accentuate the right moments. Yes. Yeah. yeah. For sure. And, um, that's beautiful. So that was, yeah, that would be the morning. And then usually I would get some kind of Lego thing and then burst into tears because it was too complicated for me. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, that would kind of, the day would sort of collapse into itself and <laughs> all the, the high hopes of what I might get would be, um, like <laughs> your parents your parents were not all about the newest and the latest toys and video games your parents were about um, your parents we were about educational video. stuff and books and and yeah, learning we never and... had a video game system growing up like i, never I played did. plenty of nintendo at friends houses yeah um, we did have computer games like on floppy disks oh yeah oh yeah, yeah. floppy disks real I don't think any of them were great games but the, the, that's what i got to play did you remember home. oregon trail yeah, of course. We played that in school. It was was that outlawed in Oregon? No, I don't <laughs> think so. I mean, by the time I I moved here before children, I want you all to know this is where you want to get to. You are where you want to get to, right here. That not not dying of dysentery. Here yeah. in first grade in this classroom, healthy with normal poop. I guess it's not surprising that I mean I feel like at least out here that game. Um, you know, like a friend of mine used to have a, a bumper sticker with like the, the font from the Oregon Trail that said, you have died of dysentery. Right. Um, I just feel like the game continues to be part of the zeitgeist, at least here and maybe everywhere, that it's like, it's fodder for a lot of jokes and oh. like sat, you know, satire and stuff like that. Cause it was such a ridiculous game. Um, it was a wonderful game. I was loved it? it. I love. I, I thought it was well. I mean, it's like it's very biblical. Yeah. And and like instead of having to go to some kind of Sunday school, you could just play the game and get get the way get what you needed. Life is full of suffering, and sometimes Were you always you, a and sometimes to... life is full of suffering, and sometimes <laughs> you shoot one thousand eight hundred twenty-two pounds of elk. <laughs> Do you remember? You could. Yes. You shoot and then you could only endless, take. Like, you could only take five pounds. Yeah. <laughs> Like wh- where did where did all like the buffalo go? They were. <laughs> um, did, were you a banker from Boston when you would play? Do you do you remember? Because you no. could choose like the difficulty level. No, I wouldn't. You would have a lot more. I don't like that was the wealthiest no. things so you could buy. A the banker most from Boston. Yes. No. I or like not. there was like a I, I I can't recall what the the lowest. Yeah. Did you and your brother play a lot of board games when you were young? Because of the lack of video game access no i mean we played monopoly as a family i played chess describe your mom and your dad playing monopoly how did they play was it was it rigorous was there a lot of negotiating and trading of properties was it was it loose where there's it just i feel wine? like there was less of that than what i've experienced in other 
circumstances of playing Monopoly. Yeah, I wish we played other games because there's so many great board games now, and I'm sure some of them existed. The one game that I think is undersung that I'm going to give a shout out to that we played a lot of growing up is called The Amazing Labyrinth. Do you know this game? Never heard of it. Okay, so it's like, a let's say there's 64 uh, squares on the board, and only half of them are fixed. And so you set it up kind of at random, and you're trying to find the, you're trying to get to these um, treasures. But each move, you push a tile onto the board, and that moves an entire row or column. You So you're changing the labyrinth throughout. The board itself is constantly reconstructed, and and that was just cool, like, spatial stuff. I think my dad was really good at it. Uh, as an engineer, that makes sense. Was he a computer engineer? Yeah, he went to engineering. He got his master's in engineering, dropped out of a PhD program because he got a job with IBM in the mid-60s, and then worked there for a long time. The name, the name, the name of the company is... IBM, I know. It's ridiculous. Especially because as kids, that's what, that was considered <laughs> polite. We, if we needed to go number two, it was, I need to go BM. <laughs> and I was like, why is this company called that? Yeah, that was pretty funny. I mean, they could have named it other things. I mean, there was a group of people at a, at a, around a table mm-hmm. at one point. Nobody, no, they, did they laugh? And they said, let's do this because it's so obviously. I, I don't think potty humor was like a big, like it's become like so present. Oh, come on. It was always, come on. Maybe. Yeah. They didn't notice? I don't think they, no- I bet they didn't notice. I think it was one oh, of those things. Oh, God. You know. They, maybe it was only two people and maybe they were just engineers and they were like, this is the name of what we're doing because it makes sense. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I don't know. He was. That. He was an engineer at IBM for a long time. Yeah. Do you think he loved working? No. Do you think he hated working? No. No, I think he was... Do you uh, think he realized he was working? Yes. Uh, I I think he hated commuting, and he was transferred out to Oregon, and then my memory is that he thought he was going to be working at, like, a branch in Portland, so that's why he moved here. But then immediately it was he was being sent to Salem, which is about an hour drive. Um, so he spent like the first year or so we were out here commuting an hour each way. Plus, you know, that that drive has gotten worse over time. But like there's still rush hour, an issue wherever. And then he was laid off. So we moved out here because of his job. And he mm. was laid off, I think, in 1994. So wow. as far as I'm concerned, like it, just selfishly speaking, like a good thing for me to. Yeah relocated personally but that's a lot of upheaval for a job and it's sort of surprising to me that it was never a consideration when he was told you're going to be transferred you know and the whole family had this choice between either portland and this was 1992 so the blazers had just made the finals for the second time in three years (laughs) and my brother and i that's all we knew about portland and that was not yeah glad drexler yeah there were probably like bears and you know, mountains with snow on them and stuff like that. So that was exciting. And then uh, the alternative was Columbus, Ohio, which, Ooh. yeah, with, yeah, that's the reaction most people have. Columbus is... It's a college I, town. Like, it's a college town, and there's some really cool small press stuff that's been happening there for a long time. But that was uh, the silver lining for a 11-year-old kid 
that, no. you know, that eventually there would be some cool writing coming out of Columbus. Right. Um, and, slightly, and, slightly worse weather than Portland. Yeah. Nobody wants to stay in Ohio. No. It's a place that people try to move from usually. I think so. Um, it's a hard, it's a hard place. That, that area of the Midwest, my dad's from West Virginia, right on the Ohio border. Yeah. It's, it's not easy to access the East Coast really, and it's not easy to access the West Coast. And the weather's you, rough. Like I, the weather's been, bad. It's been a week in Cincinnati right before the 2016 election volunteering. And, um, right, right. uh, it was like 90 degrees plus every day and the humidity, cause it's that valley, that river valley. Yeah, was something I was not really ready for, because yeah. out here we have a dry heat most of the time. So, yeah, yeah it was wilting. <laughs> yeah, it's not not fun in the winter, not fun in the summer. Nice for about two months in the spring. You can lie on me, honey. You can combine anything you want. So, were you guys in New York City? Were you in Manhattan? Were you in Brooklyn? We were in Westchester, so you're in Westchester, yeah. Upstate. So okay. it was a short train ride into Manhattan. My parents met living in Manhattan, lived there till like the late seventies. We didn't go into the city that often um, mm-hmm. uh, as kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a pretty idyllic childhood, except for the fact that the town we were in, just like culturally, was it was this like kind of unusually conservative place, pretty wealthy. Yeah, we lived in a townhouse. I think only like a small corner of our house was in the town where we went to school, but it was enough that the property taxes somehow allowed for us to go to this really good school. So it's like I got, you know, I got small classes, a lot of yeah. attention teachers. Yeah. But in 1988, when Michael Dukakis ran against George H. W. Bush, I was one of two kids in my second grade class. Who we had like, why are you doing this with? Yeah, like, yeah, why are you doing this? We had this like with... a mock election and it was yeah. like, everybody voted for. Two. And I was like, I, I, I want to know who the other kid is. I'm not sure that I, I just put my head down. I was like, you know, when the <laughs> alternate, like, you don't want to draw attention to yourself, but I had a hyphenated last name. So it was probably clear, you know, <laughs> um, and a Jewish mom in a town where there were very few Jewish people. Um, you but, had a hyphenated yeah. last name. Yeah, it still is. It's still a headache every year with taxes. With you know, that's uh, a detail. My but social security number like doesn't you know like if I just use healed like you know when I'm filling out like W twos or you know that kind of thing like always get they get flagged and when did you drop? It? Uh, I, we dropped it when we moved to Oregon, my brother and I, because we were tired. You lost, of you lost it on the thing. Oregon. You lost it on the Oregon yeah. Trail. We were tired of being the only kids with hyphenated last names, and then lo and behold, like many of the people I became friends with out here, hyphenated names. I don't miss it. It's just what, like what's what's the name that I don't know? Oh, uh, my mom. Well, we cut my mom's last name out, which I don't feel great about, it, but it was Rankin Healed. Which oh, it was Rankin healed. Like, you know, there's a lot of the like hyphenated names that really roll off the tongue. Yeah. Like British people, for example, they have these like hyphenated names where you're like, oh, that sounds cool. Rankin healed to me is a bit of a mouthful. Yeah. Uh, healed Rankin somehow would a little bit easier. Oh, to... funny because we had that was the sign in Massachusetts. Someone had given my parents like they painted a sign so the bottom of our, that steep driveway had this little hand painted sign that said healed Rankin because I think people thought. 
dad's name should yeah. go first. You know, it's the patriarchal. Yeah. <laughs> that That's how we were known up there, the Heald Rankins, but we were the Rankin Heelds legally. I once considered changing my last name to Abrams, my mom's maiden yeah. name. I feel more like a Jonah Abrams than a Jonah Hall in some ways. There was a point at, I, I mean, I, I don't feel especially Jewish, but I don't feel Hall. Um, you know, Hall, what is Hall? It's like the most, one of the five most common, you know, waspy names that exist. Williams, Smith, Johnson, Hall. Thompson. Um, Thompson. <laughs> we could go on. Um, but it's not, I, I don't know. I guess I never felt proud to be a part of my dad's side of the family. I never, I, I don't know that I felt especially proud to be a part of my mom's. I felt very individual from the beginning. And I think that made my first name fit because it's a little bit unusual. It's not unusual compared to my daughter's name, but it's, I um I, I had a time where I felt like it didn't represent me, Jonah Hall. It felt like it represented uh, my dad and I was disconnected. And this was probably when I was like 18 or 17. But anyway, names are funny. They don't really mean anything, but then you identify, and it goes back to identity, like if you had been the Rankins instead of the Heels, that would have been dramatic to have just your mother's last name. Mm -hmm. And that would have, that, and you would have felt something about that maybe. But your dad would have had to like, he would have fully accepted the circumvention of the, of the tradition to do that. Yeah. Well, and then, you know, I had an awareness, uh, Rankin was not that that was a name that was given to our ancestors on my mom's side sometime in, you're probably around 1917 when they shortened from Russia. Shortened from Rankinovitz. No, no, I don't even know what the, the name was. I mean, they were oh. Russian Jews who fled, yeah. you know, during World War One. you know, during all the upheaval around, around the Soviet, you know, revolution, I guess. And yeah, um, yeah, I think, I mean, like, imagine how arbitrary, like those, those decisions were as they were moving people through Ellis Island, like, totally just like, Oh, your name starts with an R or something like that. Here's, here's a, because Rankin is like a waspy name, actually. Oh, Um, yeah. It doesn't sound Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, I think it's English. Hmm. So I don't know that there was ever a great deal of attachment that my mom had to that name, although she kept it because, you know, she had been married before my dad and changed her name for during that first marriage. And then after that, the divorce, she had sort of established herself as a journalist with her maiden name with Rankin. And, you know, she never considered changing it again because it had been a mistake the first time for her and how long was her first marriage i don't know exactly she was 20 i think when she dropped out of college and moved to chicago with this guy who never heard anything good about him 
named mm. Jim, um, who was a photographer but never really made any money. And she was supporting the two of them and putting herself through school mm. and started working as a journalist while they were together. She left Chicago, I think, in 1970 and had been divorced for at least a year maybe before then. So they may have been married for as long as five or six years. Hmm. Yeah. It's funny how whatever happened in the past is the past for, for parents. Uh, you know, new new kids, uh, new situation. Why would Why would she go into this, like, painful few years before she had the family with your dad? With you. I mean, why would she talk about, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, she rarely did. I mean, sometimes she would like sort of, uh, hint at like stuff like it's not worth sacrificing your own future for a relationship, you know, based on her own experiences, but it would like stay pretty vague about what she meant by that. Cautionary tales. Yeah. That said, um, I do, ha- <laughs> she, because she died so suddenly, um, and because she was much more organized than I am, but there's a family trait that both I have, my aunt has, um, my grandmother had of hanging on to all paper, oh. anything that might have sentimental my mother. or not sentimental, but just be like sort of an interesting like mm-hmm. document. I have boxes and boxes of letters from that era, um, you know, journals she kept. I have a lot of stuff that I've looked through that's pretty intense that I don't know what to do with, except, you know, it's not something I want to destroy, but it also doesn't feel like something um, that is appropriate to like make public without like really thinking hard about it. Um, Mm. Certain questions I've had have been, uh, the answers have been hinted at through some of the things I've come across Mm -hmm. just about Mm -hmm. like what her life was like between these two long, between her two marriages and you know, why she moved to New York from Chicago and all that stuff. So I've been reading about, specifically male depression and there's a really good book called i don't want to talk about it and it's a by a psychotherapist named terence real and he he frames depression he kind of uses feminist psychology to then talk about men so it's sort of like bridging how socializing men to be a certain way masculinity in our culture in the united states at this you know this was written in like 97 but it applies completely. It's basically what we do to boys as they become men and how that leads to depression, um, how that how that exacerbates feelings of depression and anxiety. And um, so I'm thinking about some of these things. I'm, I'm talking to some people about their fathers and about vulnerability and masculinity and depression. And um, it's an interesting thing to think about covert depression. Because we think of depression as an overt, you know, I'm suicidal or I'm, I need heavy medication to survive or this kind of thing. To say I'm depressed when, like, how are you doing? Oh, I'm depressed. How are you? You know, not not so easy um, for people to say unless they have, like, fully accepted their state and are recovering in some way or addressing it in some way. And most of the time we don't address our pain or our depression or our anxieties, we we avoid them or try to fill our lives with distractions so we don't feel them because it's painful. And men in particular, in this book, I'm thinking about how covert depression, what it looks like in terms of behavior. And he, he this, this psychotherapist, he talks about it's often addiction. 
And it's not just drugs or alcohol. It, it could be exercise. It could be performance-based self-esteem and work and feeling the, the highs of a promotion or, or a raise or, or working so hard to achieve some concrete goal. And then that gives you a sense of self-worth and it sort of fills the, the, the hole. Yeah. Um, but it's temporary. There's always the next goal. There's always the next way of uh, feeling good. So you don't feel bad. It's not, and there's no equilibrium there. There's no balance there. There's just uh, always striving to feel okay. Anyway, this thing about covert depression really strikes a chord with me and makes me think about a lot of people in my life. And, and if you start to think about everyone and depression, you can see everyone is mildly to extremely depressed. I mean, it's kind of the human condition, suffering. <laughs> but to say we're all depressed is to obviously overgeneralize and to focus too much on the negative. Mm -hmm. We all have suffering. That doesn't mean we're all depressed. This is a long way of asking, how would you describe or characterize your dad's connection with his emotions and ability to communicate and be vulnerable? And where do you think that came from? Hmm. So think about your grandfather, whatever you know about your grandfather and your dad yeah. as a child, and then try to extrapolate and then what you saw as a child. Uh, well, my my paternal grandfather died when I was a year old. Um, so I didn't know him, but I've, I've heard a lot about him. And in fact, among the letters I found were these amazing letters. Have I told you about the le these letters? I um, I hinted at them in uh the first issue of the zine Christine and I made like or mm -hmm. I, like there's like a, a brief reference to finding them but he wrote these really long letters I thought had been written by my grandmother at first because of his penmanship like to my eye looked kind of feminine he was not he was a chemist for a paper plant and like very like no nonsense uh I've become very close with one of my cousins over the last couple of years who did know him because she's about a decade older than I am and she was like her early childhood, she was like super intimidated. He would pay her no mind, like throughout the day, like you weren't supposed to disturb him. And then he would have his cocktail or, you know, at 5 p.m. This sounds, I see you nodding. Like, I think this is, you know, he was a very typical, like white man, I think, who uh, like lived in the mid century, you know, like kind of like was this dominant personality in his household. And when he wanted things to be fun, uh, then that was okay. But otherwise, like, you were not supposed to make um, ruckus around him. And um, So he, I'm sure my, my dad uh, inherited a lot of, of the sort of the tight-lipped emotional uh, baggage that comes with that kind of person being your parent. Um, uh when he would talk about his dad or tell a story, he didn't well, talk. Well, about him he much. didn't. He didn't talk. Yeah. He didn't. They well, talk about I, his mom. Honestly, the most enlightening thing that I found in these letters. So they they were written in the late seventies, around the time my my older brother was born. Uh, my grandparents had moved out to the Rocky Mountains. Like they that was their end point, like retirement. Um, they had been in South Carolina, and I think my grandfather was a chain smoker. He died of lung cancer. I think that the idea, among many ideas, was 
that the air in the Rockies would be better for his lungs, even though yeah. it's like maybe if you stop smoking, that'd be better for your lungs too. That um, that that happened in my and my mom's family yeah. way back to they went to Utah because uh, some child had a, a respiratory condition. Day, yeah. So and then there was other family that was already out there too. Um. Anyway, I my grandmother was alive till I was uh, 16, so I got to spend a lot of time there. Um, in that house that they moved to. So it was interesting to read you know, the, about the early period of time that they were in this house. And my grandmother would annotate the, the letter. So it would be like an eight page letter and she would like read it and then mail it off. But then she would add her like corrections, you know, or like additions and like little footnotes. And so he would talk about how much it had snowed and how much he was having to shovel. And there was this, this like little footnote at, about the shoveling. And she's like, your father is the only person on our entire street who shovels after every time it snows. He'll shovel after three inches. And all you have to do in Colorado is wait a few hours because the sun is so strong, you know, it just melts. And so he was out there, <laughs> you know, like 70 years old, not in the greatest of health by any stretch and just like obsessively like shoveling their driveway. And probably everybody around was just like, what is crazy? And I was just like, and but it gave me a lot of insight. Like my dad was always really kind of a, uh, I'm trying not to use the word obsessive, uh, due to, because I think people, this came up, uh, while editing the, the next book for my press, but the author I'm working with is very sensitive to language and he's, um, was concerned. He described himself as being obsessive and he's like, you know, there are people in my life who actually do have serious, like, OCD who might find yeah. it offensive because it's like we usually use it as yeah. as a, sort of a jokey kind of thing. It um, can be debilitating. Yeah. And this was not debilitating, I don't think, okay. for my grandfather or for my dad. I was just going to say that my dad was, a, he was that, he had the same attitude about the floors in the house. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. you know, like you were not to track any dirt into the house, you know, and of course they, they always had these dogs that were very like low slung, you know, like two inches off the ground. Corgis. <laughs> so like the amount of little tiny little yeah, right off the ground corgis. Off their bellies. Buster, like for example, or in comparison, like his fur just doesn't hold dirt yeah. for very long. But yeah. the corgis, like they would just get like matted in there for like it was intense, you know, yeah. to kind of really clean them. But um, yeah, it gave me some insight into like why my dad cared about certain things, you know, being very tidy. And also, like, my grandfather was a good writer, and I think he had, like, aspirations to write a book. You know, he was a good storyteller, as is my uncle. Um, so it's, like, even though they were, like, emotionally constipated men, I think it's okay to make jokes around constipation, but I apologize to anybody who has chronic constipation. Um, these these I think it's a, I think it's a vivid description, and it's it, it works. Yeah. Um, despite that they all also were very like expressive in how they use language and mm. um, maybe not around emotional stuff, but around like experiences and mm -hmm. memories and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So mm -hmm. like that was an acceptable thing to do. Whereas maybe you didn't want to talk about get deep into your feelings, but you could, you could reflect on like decades old journeys in this right. way. That was okay. Or talk right. about the weather in a very poetic way. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's acceptable uh, topics and uh, and ways. Description is is not frowned upon. Interior life and introspection yeah. and the messy emotions that we feel. That was that's right. And, and 
I was talking with um, a friend, Jeremy, about this, and he said his dad's literacy level was always a problem for him. So he didn't literally didn't have the words to to communicate what he was feeling. A lot of the time is what Jeremy understands. And if you think about it from that language is so complex and our emotions without language are so visceral, but they're so confined. I mean, as writers, as, as people who love music, expressing emotion without tools, without, without music or voice or the written word, without tools, how do we express emotion? Right? I mean, you can attempt to, but yeah. it, it's a limited process that you just don't have the whole rainbow. Yeah. And I think for a lot of men, they are socialized to not see the rainbow. They're socialized to see a few colors because those are the colors of currency. Those are the colors of social status. Those are the colors of performance-based self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they get fired and can't provide for their family and can't fit the model, then they become depressed in an openly overt way. And it leads to addictions that are obvious. But yeah. if they fit the model, follow it, get promoted, have the children, things seem to be fine. There's still American beauty. There's still the the undercurrents of limits on how to express and feel and how to live and f- feel fully alive as middle age takes over, as your dreams sort of slowly get crushed. Like the ability to articulate what you're feeling is so essential to being balanced. Mm-hmm. And if you can't do it, I think you're inherently unbalanced. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, I, I, I have no idea, really. Uh, I, I think as I get older, I realize that. Let me reframe it. Yeah. When you feel most emotionally constipated, what is going on? <laughs> Seriously. So anxiety is something you deal with. I deal with it. Yeah, sure. Um, okay. So when it gets extreme, it, it becomes harder to feel the other emotions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It sort of dominates. Um, so if you think about that, why, why does it overwhelm for you that anxiety? Why does that, is it because you're caught in a loop in your mind of thoughts, a spiral kind of, of, I have to fix this or is it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to bring this back to like my dad, like watching him die, um, and now for 14 months he was dying. Um, he rarely talked about, he in fact almost didn't talk about how he felt about it, except he would do this thing. And I, I found it frustrating because it, you know how when you, you hear a phrase that you haven't heard from someone you know intimately and like it feels a little out of character. It felt a little out of character that he he would just say, oh, well, like he would like get new bad news from the doctor and just go, oh, well, you know, in this kind of uh, in this way that felt a little bit of not even an act, but it felt like he was just not even going to engage with uh, the reality of it. But that's it. I can't judge whether or not it's better to be fully emotionally present for a long terminal illness or whether it's better like he did like he was still 
playing Sudoku like the day he died and mm-hmm. reading the news, you know, in this yeah. this way where I was like, I would like to think that I would be like fully present in the wondrous mystery of life and like go be outside if possible towards the end, like instead of like looking at a screen. And then I'm like, who knows what might be going on? Maybe the Blazers would be having a good season and that's all I would care about. You know, like that you just kind of transfer, you know, you're just like, this is, this has brought me joy. You know, for him, Sudoku brought him at least satisfaction. And My dad too. Yeah. And, you know, it was hard for me to like see him spending time. I would go over there the last few days and see him choosing to spend time not engaged with me, not engaged with anything other than what he kind of always turned to. But I'm like, how stressful and, and, and intense is it to, to be at the end like that? I can't judge it, you know? Like, I, yeah. I can't. And, um, yeah, but yeah, personally speaking, like, I don't know. I don't know that I feel numb very often, but, uh, certainly anxious. Um, mm-hmm. and I don't know. I typically, it's like, I need to shift something in how I'm spending my time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes that's easier said than done. Like I spent, we've not had the greatest habits in the kitchen lately in terms of dirty dishes piling up. And over the weekend, I just like spent like an hour and a half, like just cleaning the kitchen. It's going to make you feel better no matter Mm -hmm. what, you know, even if in the moment you're like, I don't want to do it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. No, it's, it's become a constant way of, so you were talking earlier about snow and shoveling. Yeah. And and I was thinking of weeds and, and my own experience with how I feel, how I feel when I clean the yard, when I, when I, when I rake the leaves, when I pull the weeds, when I water the flowers, um, yeah. when I sweep these endless the seeds drop from the redwood tree, this big redwood tree behind us and it's endless. Uh, and, and it's like, there are times it's exhausting. There are times it's annoying. There are times it's aggravating. And there are other times I'm glad to be sweating back to the, the, yeah. the Nor- Norwegian, like feeling the wind on your face. That's an actual like wellness routine. Yeah. Your body needs, your skin needs, your cheeks need to feel breeze, you know, to feel better. And I I believe that. And I believe the screen and the indoor and the internal and the pandemic, the confines of being inside and of being afraid of everything has really taken a toll mentally on so many people. Yeah. With We need to be outside. We need to be in nature. But if we're outside and afraid, that's not healthy. Well, just a little story. Hopefully the the powers that be at warehouser the the logging company don't listen to this episode um but i went out it was like the last week of decent weather before things got real wet and snowy at least around the portland area so i I went to one of my favorite trails um which is not far like an hour away in mid-november christine and i and buster i always gotta give him credit for being there we spent two nights we backpacked in uh during a heat wave the weekend before my dad died in june same trail Mm -hmm. and I've been you know this is a trail I've been to a number of times um and you know it's just like one of those like spaces that is for me meaningful I wanted to go back because while we were out there I knew that my dad was getting sicker he was very blunt and direct when it came to delivering kind of like important slash bad news it was via text that he announced he was he he uh took the death with dignity uh prescription to that's how he died 
in June and he announced his intentions of doing it over text to me and my brother, uh, which was a text I received when we got back to the car after two nights in wilderness. And I had like run back almost all the way to the trailhead the first morning because I wanted to make sure that he hadn't really taken a turn for the worse. Mm-hmm. But I was still thinking he might have a couple weeks potentially. I don't know. But it was like it was like a very intense thing to realize that it was going to happen within a few days. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had to support that decision. I wanted to go back there and have a different memory, sort of superimpose that over like that not be like the looming the last time I was out there was when I got that text. I wanted to go have like this nice day, you know, right before winter sets in. Mm-hmm. So I drive out there with Buster in the car and this is on a road. The last few miles are on like a pretty rough road that mm-hmm. occasionally has been closed by Warehouser, the logging company. Mm-hmm. And I get about a mile in and then there's a sign that's like, says like timber falling ahead. <laughs> Oh boy. <laughs> but there's no sounds like I and the, and then it was stretched across the road and but it was like a loose thing and I left it up but I I just chose I was like I need to do this hike today. I don't hear any the sign was stretched over the road. Okay. So it was like and it was meant to stop a vehicle. Yeah. Right? But it was also like a string so like it wasn't like a chain, it wasn't yeah. a gate. And there was no sound of a logging operation. Like, had I heard, like, chainsaws, big trucks, I would have turned around. But I was like, I've been out there enough where I know that they just try to block that road sometimes if they Mm -hmm. have some logging going on. Anyway, I I made the decision. I was just like, I need to do this hike today. I'm pretty sure, like, it was already almost midday. I don't think they're suddenly going to have these, like, big trucks come out. You know, when they work, they work all day. Yeah. Instead of, like... Take, trying to take the string down. I had my arm out the window and I'm like making sure it goes over the roof of the car, got up, made sure it wasn't caught in anything, drive yeah. you know, carefully through there. And like the road was in worse shape than normal after that, but there was no, like there was no trees along the road where like a tree was going to fall in the car or something like that. So it felt like the kind of thing that was a little bit like a bullshit is a okay. liability thing. Yeah. But it was like riskier than what I would normally do where I'm obviously doing something that I'm being told not to do and like yeah. I get back in the car have this nice hike and then a pickup is coming towards me as I'm leaving and we kind of eyed one another and they just kept going and I get back to the place where the sign had been and they had just <laughs> these guys probably were at people go out and shoot you know like their guns at targets uh you know after work kind of thing and I think that's probably what they were heading out to do mm-hmm. but they they had made the much wiser decision which was if you just take the sign down and someone tells you, like, why did you go through, you just be like, the sign wasn't there. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they had just pulled it off the, the tree. But like, mm-hmm. I, so I feel like the lesson there is I needed to have that experience that day. And I feel more emboldened in the future to do this, that sort of thing again. How did I, you had asked me something or you brought something up where I wanted to, to mention this anecdote. Um I don't, I don't remember what led to it. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah. Well, it's, you, you had a meaningful hike and it allowed you to, you said, superimpose the memory over yeah. the negative memory of getting the text that, so, so the death with dignity, can you talk a little bit about that and the experience with your mom? Well, she was too sick to, she had, the law at that point in 2014 was you had to put in a first request that two doctors sign off on. And then wait, I believe, 15 days before a second request. Mm-hmm. And so in the that 
15 day period and you had seen her a little before I think she put in the first request. Mm. You saw her briefly, right? When, I think so. Yeah. yeah. And so she was pretty, yeah. she was quite sick, but like healthy enough to like, I did see her We, we yeah. when I dropped you off. Yes. I remember her in bed. Um, she wasn't well enough to like leave the house or go to the doctor by the, by the point that the second um, request would have been necessary. So she didn't have that option and it was brutal. You know, she had, she had, as soon as Oregon passed the law in the nineties about around death with dignity, she was like very clear that that was, if she had a terminal illness, that was the choice she would make. Mm-hmm. And then they now have rewritten the law where if you're like primary, you know, do, the, the primary doctor who signed off on it believes that you have 24 hours to live then they will write you the prescription. So like if you were to get much sicker mm-hmm. and they feel like in you in good mental state had already asked for it once, yeah, they will rush the prescription. So like I think um unfortunately she was, you know, among the last people, the last wave of people who didn't have that option available. And, you know, that affected all of us. It affected my dad. Uh I don't really want to go into the details of um her death except to say that i think it reinforced his desire to make sure he got that prescription so like Mm -hmm. he i went with him in march and the oncologist who signed off on his request was actually someone i i knew through my old job just a little bit but it was kind of surreal to like know that he was the one who was writing the prescription yeah so we went um i think the prescription was good for six months and he didn't fill it till early June. And then it, he got it in like the dry, the powder form, which mm-hmm. was had like a six month shelf life. So we knew like, that's when the clock kind of started, but like, we knew that, you know, th- there could have been a risk where it's like the medication could have gone bad um, if you wait longer than six months, but like mm-hmm. everything suggested that, that the end was coming like relatively quickly, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's a, you know, he, he was sharp the whole way. Like my mom became, you know, I won't say she, she wasn't comatose, but she was not herself. She was having like, you know, um, like what felt like night terrors a lot and not recognizing us always mm-hmm. towards the end. And certainly not, um, did not have all her faculties in like yeah. the last week of her life. My dad, however, like in- including the last morning of his life, like my brother and I went over there and he was just like, matter of fact you know you know he uh i think you got that email i sent out where the last thing he did he had taken like the there was several steps to taking the medication you know he like he's like oh hang on and he like went and charged his phone like and we still don't understand what (laughs) like what purpose that had turned off his computer right turned off his computer yeah and then the phone is charged Make sure the phone was charged for the afterlife. Uh, who knows? And um, but it was, you know, it. I think I thought it would be easier to see somebody make this choice. Um, and, you know, I, on the, I, I was always supportive. I never questioned it. Yeah. Um, Eight, how many months? Fourteen. Fourteen months. Yeah, and pancreas. Like they caught yeah, it. Pretty that's incredible. Early. Yeah, they caught it early. He had four rounds of treatment. Hmm. The, la- the last treatment ended, I think, in November of last year. And so then after that, he had this this nice window of time between, like, November and February where he 
even though like he had some blood tests come back that indicated the cancer was growing, he did not have any um, symptoms of cancer. Wow. Other than, you know, I mean, I think he, energy level and he, his weight didn't ever really go back up, but his quality of life for several months between, you know, that last treatment and when things really took a turn, which was in February, um, was pretty high. And, uh, and frankly, like the oncologist was great for being very clear that like continuing with treatment was not recommended for someone mm-hmm. his age and like mm-hmm. that chemo was going to be less and less effective. Yeah. And of course your immune system is suffering through getting chemo. So yeah. COVID that was like another thing where I was like, if you're off chemo, like you're stronger, right. even though the cancer is coming back eventually. Um, but yeah, so I just felt like I was prepared for it. Uh, but then like having him and make that announcement and then seeing how he was spending his time playing Sudoku after he was like, I'm going to do it this week was hard and like made me feel like there's this complexity to that law that I, I had always got kind of felt like, wow, we're so lucky to live in a state where you can have this option. But Mm -hmm. as the family who's attached to somebody who's making that choice, like, you know, unless you want to, unless you're the sort of person who's going to like argue, which is like really disrespectful, especially when he clearly, it wasn't like he was, his judgment had suddenly become clouded or no. he was confused about what was going 14 on. 14 months of pancreatic cancer at age... He was 82. 82. I mean, yeah. To yeah. argue to argue with yeah. someone would be selfish. Um, but yeah, the big thing for me was I went over there. The day before he died was the um, uh, Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony to the January 6th committee. And oh. Yeah. My dad had been real into all those hearings mm-hmm. and I was like, okay, I'm, you know, like I'll go over and we'll sit through three hours of testimony. And he had, he would have been trying to avoid taking painkillers. And then he took one right before he got there. Cause I mean, the cancer had spread throughout his abdomen and he mm-hmm. said it was always discomfort, never pain, but I'm mm-hmm. sure it was really terrible. Yeah. And, uh, especially for somebody like him who was real stoic, like to be taking painkillers. Um, and he just mm-hmm. slept through the whole thing, never got off the couch for, I was over there for you know, five hours. And, mm-hmm. and I was like, where's the quality of life if that's where you're at, where you don't have the energy to even kind of tune into this thing that you've been obsessed or preoccupied by. Preoccupied. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And so that became easier just in the last day. But like, I remember two days before he died, just leaving and being like, what the hell? Like, mm. I don't think he's ready to go. Like, what, what do I do? You know, I can't talk him out of it. I'm not going to try, but like, like this is weird that you can make this choice mm. in this way. Anyway, my, the takeaway is that it's complicated, but it mm-hmm. was a really peaceful, painless process. Mm-hmm. And having seen my mom die in a very different way, I was grateful yeah. for that. And, um, yeah. and it was, there was like a real sort of like a dark humor to the day throughout. Mm. Like, just like there was sort of a comedy of errors quality to that morning. Um, not necessarily around the death, but around like getting there and then what happened afterwards. And like, I'm still sort of sorting through that experience, but like, it was really different. It was, you know, it was like profoundly different in part because we knew it was coming and it was easy. Like the mm. actual act itself, mm-hmm. you know, like was easy. And um, mm. thank you for going through that and sharing that. It's um, 
enlightening and and complicated and um i i just uh i think i think it's hard to talk about things like vulnerability and grief and um i appreciate that you are willing to talk about it and share it and um yeah and to put some context around it i wonder when you hear people talk about <clears throat> you know i'm going to live to be 100 not i want to or i hope to I'm going to. When you hear that, what do you think? Well, I just wonder if they know anyone in their 90s. Like, things yeah. really start to fall apart. Yeah. Uh, my grandmother lived till she was 97, and mm. that seemed uh, seemed too long, you know, like. Yeah. On his deathbed, my, my grandfather, my mom's father was 90, <laughs> and he said, don't live this long yeah. and take and take care of your mother. Yeah. He was active through most of his 80s and then he had um he couldn't basically walk the last like few months maybe five months or something and so i think you know that's very hard to suddenly be immobile yeah Uh, but also his dad died when he was six years old his dad my grandfather's father died when he was six of a heart attack so to for his dad to die in his mid-40s i think or early 40s and then for him to live to 90 that's very strange, I think, in a way. I don't know. I, I, again, I shouldn't be as judgmental and I try not to be so judgmental, but I think it's extremely presumptuous when people say I'm going to with age, when it, when it comes to age, or I expect to, uh, be this age because of the decisions I've made. I mean, to me, it's very, our life is so fragile and tenuous and uh, impossible in many ways. Like the, the act of living is so strange and mysterious. Yes. Well, and I'm and, like, you, you live on the West coast. Like what are these, you know, the wildfires, like what, what's that going to mean for all of us who. Oh yeah. Our respiratory. Yeah, totally. Annual, you know, yeah. like a to you, I have a dog. There's a dog on the street that has lung cancer. Yeah, it's it's its nose is low to the ground, and the the owner of the dog, who actually actually just had a horrible, she she's in her sixties and she was very vibrant and and active and working as a nurse, and she got hit by car when she was walking through a crosswalk oh, God. on a busy street, car going thirty miles an hour, she barely made it out of the hospital, and is still limping along, and her life is devastated, but she's talking about bringing her dog to the to the beach. Uh, near 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 the water during the wildfires because she dog wanted to go out she was going to bring the dog out and the dog has lung cancer from these wildfires two two or three years of these uh you know so yeah we don't think about all of the effects we think about covid you know and then many people don't want to think about covid anymore you know we think about the wildfires while they're happening and then most people oh good we have good clean air i'm not going to think about the air now but if you notice in the bay area the the people uh, burning wood in their in their chimneys it actually affects the air quality of the bay area because of the shape of the air streams and the way the air sits and so we have some air pollution that we're creating for ourselves through burning you know burning wood because we like a cozy fire it's it's yeah. uh well and then you remember that job i had on the ship mm-hmm. so i worked on a tall ship uh in san francisco for two you were years. a pirate no i was a tall i was <laughs> I was a a pretend sailor, but we had what had been a coal burning stove 
uh, that we would cook on. And kids came on board for this living history program, spent the night and would eat a couple meals. But without really converting it properly, we just burned wood in what had been a coal burning stove. And the gat, like, and so depending on which role you were playing, you would make the fire if you're the first mate. So I made a lot of fires, which I enjoyed because you'd like split wood, you'd make a fire, um, and like tourists would be still on board at that hour. And <clears throat> you kind of look like, you know, you know what you're doing. <laughs> but then often the fire would struck if the wind was, here's the wind again, the smoke would kind of get blown back into the galley. And like, it would just be, you'd be like choking with smoke in there. And so mm-hmm. I spent two years of not hours in, in, in there, but like, it's often pretty bad. And I'm just like, oh. you know, never thought about like, can I get a workers comp claim? Like, right. Right. Where was 40 OSHA? Years, 40 years afterwards. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just, you know, life takes years off your life, right? <laughs> <laughs> living like, ta- living takes years off your life but also just the sense of especially when you're confident in your body through sports mm-hmm. there's a i mean i have a knee knee problem and i have a, a tendon problem in my finger you know but i'm generally okay and then suddenly i have double pneumonia i'm in the hospital for three nights and i suddenly have a totally different i mean i had sinus issues before that for the winters uh over out here you know, leading up and the colds and being in schools all the time and being around all these different people. And so I, I was used to having sinus issues and then suddenly I have double pneumonia and I, my immune system is not great. It's not great. And then COVID comes. And before COVID is officially here, I have one of the worst months of health of my life. So I'm very, I, I, I guess I'm especially sensitive to when people feel like because of the choices they've made they deserve to live a certain amount of time i just i just feel like it, it keeps you from appreciating the fragility of life and i think i think it's a gift to appreciate the fragility of life i think if you can't appreciate how fragile it is you, you're just kind of again you're not seeing the whole rainbow you're just seeing a few colors it's about productivity or efficiency or about your next bucket list item you know, it's not about actually enjoying this day for this day and being here. And and I, I know it's hard to do that. We have so many things distracting us, keeping us from living each day to its sort of most compassionate and, and having most gratitude for the act of being alive. But really, we should. In the morning and in the evening, if we don't have any reflection on that, we're missing we're missing something, I think. It doesn't mean you should pray every day. It doesn't mean you have to meditate. It doesn't mean you have to be in nature every day. But if it's a practice to actually appreciate living, isn't that a better life than to just go on autopilot and keep, you know, your head down? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> no, you don't think so? No, of course I do. Yeah. It's hard to do, though, right? For sure, yeah. This distractions, goals, ambitions, the day-to-day, the dishes. Everything gets in the way of actually being to enjoy being alive. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think, 
it's a fascinating experience to to be a person and of course none of us knew that we would spend this many years living through a pandemic I, you I seem know. you seem hesitant to 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 make general generalizations about the the act of living <laughs> the human condition uh today i don't i don't feel capable of ex- expounding on it how the others receive they call i'm much too fast to take that test change When you're editing the books that you're choosing to to publish, and you have a wonderful small press, Perfect Day Publishing, yeah. wonderful small press, and 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 you've put out how many books total? Uh, we we will have our tenth out in May of next year. That's wonderful, and and um, I uh, admire the effort over the years, and the and I look to you sometimes as a beacon of, oh, you know, you can continue. You can continue and persevere and build something uh, despite, you know, all the ups and downs and all the difficulties. And that's that's beautiful. And 10 years and 10 books. And I was wondering about the editing process and working with writers. And can you talk a little bit about what you've learned about the process of editing through these 10 books? How, how to collaborate, how to, I guess, getting from point A to point B. The, the seed of the idea to the product itself? Um, well, every book is in a different state of, of doneness when, when I become part of the process. Like, um, so the, the, the book that will be out next year, um, it was closer to being finished than many of the books that I've taken on and yet it's is, been... it, is there a title that you have yes. for it? yeah it's called staring contest and then the subtitle is essays about eyes by uh, a good friend of mine joshua james amberson um who uh i mean the subtitle kind of explains it but it's a book about vision and vision loss um so there's some personal narrative um you know there's personal narrative throughout but also there are these really sort of um fascinating detours through various eye-related subjects um, like the history of eye patches pirates for example um, uh, there's a really nice piece on um, uh, Betty Davis uh, Stevie Wonder Betty Davis of course did not have vision loss that we're aware of but her eyes are famous from a mm-hmm. pop song <laughs> i've heard the uh, song most yeah. people our age mostly from the song i'll insert um, i'll insert a short snippet of the song <laughs> yeah. uh by the way that's not the original the original was and i didn't know this the original is really different from like the mid-70s
That's Jackie DeShannon from 1974 with the original version of what was later the Kim Carnes 1981 hit, Betty Davis Eyes. Jackie DeShannon and Donna Weiss wrote the original. Yeah, Joshua uh, uh, pitched the book to me about a year ago, more than a you, year ago. You had known him from, you would you would deliver books? To yeah, he runs a, a zine distro and a record label uh, called Antiquated Future. And so he's been selling books. It's an online shop, basically, and really well curated. But he's been selling our books, among many, many other things, um, for more than a decade now. Uh, and then he went through the IPRC year-long program. Uh, Let so me just know. say, Independent Publishing Resource Center in Portland, yeah. and this is a way for people to get into the small press. Yeah, and I now I now teach I now teach in that program, uh, which is great. And anyway, so he he sent me the manuscript. Like he was very, um, you know, I I officially don't accept any submissions, and he was very like respectful of that. And he's like, I know you know, this is not how you usually work, but would you be willing to like look at it? And if you don't want to do it, you never have to mention it. And I think he sent it to me in like October. And then I finally read it in February. And then I was just like, Oh, I'm such a dummy. Like, <laughs> this is great. Um, I just was really busy promoting the previous book on the press. And I always feel like when I've just finished a book that I'd never want to do it again. I get and, it. and I just didn't want to like indicate to him that there was any hope. So I was very wishy-washy. Mm-hmm. And then in February, I finally read it. And I was like, oh, this would be really fun to work on and reached out to him and it was still available. And so at that point, I was like, oh, it's closer than I'm used to a manuscript being. Like, you know, I felt like it was like three quarters of the way there, let's mm-hmm. say. Um, and yet it's taken us. I, well, Joshua put out a, a novel just um, last month. So he was working on that kind of almost concurrently. But starting mid-summer, maybe, I, I actually starting like right after my dad died, we pretty much have just hunkered down with the book and we've only now just sent it to the copy editor. So, you know, this in my mind was like going to be, I thought it would be like somehow easier, but I, it still takes months and months to, of real labor to get something to the point where both me as the editor and the author um, feel like we can sleep at night and that our work is done. So do you feel you know, like so, do you feel like a teammate? Do you feel like you are sort of equal partners, teammates in the process? Yeah, I think his. You know, I think the author always gets a little bit more of that. They have a little bit more of a say. You know, like sure, sure. So I always the whenever I've made my first pass on editing a manuscript, I always say like all of these are just suggestions. Right. You know, you know it might look like I've reworked things really heavily, but like it's a suggestion and I'm kind of pushing you right in these areas where like they could use more work. Like I'm pushing you to come up with some other solution or like, I'm not satisfied with the ending here. So here's one way it could go, but like you could take it a totally different direction. You um, provide perspective and options, but, but not like you must. Yeah. Not prescriptive. Right. Um, you said copy editing. Um, did you copy edit the first few? yourself and then no, begin outsourcing um, or no my friend Lydia copy edited most of the first few and in fact my mom copy edited Martha oh. Grimmer's first book oh nice um that's but, a nice connection yeah 
and like Lydia would work for next to nothing. And your mom charged you, I hope, after she. I think my mom. I took my mom out for lunch. That said, there are. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I at a certain point, I I had more of a budget and recognized Mm -hmm. that like having a professional copy editor is preferable. You know, it's not like an online publication where if you catch mm-hmm. an error, you can totally change it's it. It's done. It's done. Yeah. So, yeah. so for a number of books now, we've been able to hire copy editors, which, um, you know, it brings a lot of peace of mind uh, mm. to the process. I bet. You know, and there's still going to potentially be things, but I feel like it's been a couple books in a row now with no typos I'm aware of, which is rare. You know, mm. like most books, you, you know, you you pick up like. Yeah, you, you might not even recognize that there's a typo at some point, but there are often typos. And, sure, of yeah. course. There's a lot of opportunities for mistakes on, yeah. on 300 pages. Yeah. And copy editors do a lot more than just catching typos. They're you know they're sure. making sure that usage is consistent and all mm-hmm. that. And, mm-hmm. It's uh, but all of the minutia of the actual typography and the and the actual layout and all that. It, it's a process that's not nearly as fun as thinking conceptually for no, me. No, although I really, I really enjoy doing layout, like, cause I, I do the interior design and I basically have a template that I created, mm-hmm. which was just based off of books that I thought looked cool and readable. Sure. Yeah. Shelf, where yeah. I just like took out a, I measured the margins and I was like, okay, so this is how much, how big the pages are and how much right. they are. And this is the font more or less that looks best to me. Yeah. Your books feel consistent in 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 the layout and they feel good in in holding them and i and i was just reading a book that doesn't feel good in holding it which was a long it was the 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 psychotherapist book about uh, male depression and it's it was probably great in hardcover but the paperback is just this like it's a big glossy cover and the pages it it just it doesn't feel good holding the book it hurts your hands at times (laughs) Yeah, so I still I get a lot of satisfaction out of some of the last steps, you know, just mm-hmm. making it look, you know, as good as I can on the inside. I don't do the cover design because I'm not really a designer at all. So that's a challenge. Also, I've yeah. I've made my own DIY attempts that to varying degrees of okayness, um, but it's expensive. All this stuff is expensive yeah. for yeah. for a, for a freelance writer for someone who is not you know doesn't have a big cushion around it. We haven't found out, but I, I applied for a couple of grants for this book in part, like it's, this was rare to have a book lined up in my mind. This was far in advance of publication, but mm-hmm. what it has allowed for is being more focused about pursuing some grant money, which hopefully at least one of them will come through because, you know, that takes some of the stress off of, you know, how you're funding it and, uh-huh. um, Knock on wood, as far as that goes. Yeah, hopefully that goes well. I have one last topic that I would love to go into if you have time. So what does reading mean in 2022? I feel like we have information overload. The age of the internet, now, now, whatever, 10 years into smartphones, social media dominating uh, the distractibility and and the text that comes into our brains you know, social media browsing, scrolling, um, headlines. And and I I generally think that there's always been a divide between the general populace and the reading populace, like throughout history. I mean, 
back to Gutenberg and the printing press, but you know, you had to have money to be literate for a long time in human history. And then there was a very brief moment in, in American history where the GI Bill and uh, the 50s and people actually getting more educated in public schools and public colleges. Um, and now we seem to be re regressing back to we have time for the sensationalistic headlines like yellow journalism of the early newspapers of like the 19, 1910s and 20s. It's like the the time spent absorbing information is has probably gone astronomically up since 1910 but the actual act of reading um and getting deeper reading and actually spending time with back to the idea of entering a book when you first wake up you're entering into the reader the writer's mind um and your mind is clear because you've just started the day mm -hmm. you're not cluttered with all the distractions of of your day yet that clarity of mind in order to absorb the actual frame, the world that the writer is creating takes energy and focus and attention. And that I think has been shrinking in our, in our last 10 years with social media. So what does reading mean in 2022? <laughs> Simple question. Uh, yeah. Well, first I would say, I, I do think people are reading a lot, you know, on their phones like that, that there's a kind of reading that is happening that is not always bad, um, you know, including people just like scrolling Twitter. Twitter has some hilarious writing, obviously. That's why people are glued to it. Um, it's different than reading like a chapter book, you know, right? As far as like something that represents like a deeper experience. Um, but I don't know. I've been like really pleased with, you know, this is a very much a like a bubble experience, but like, like teaching my students this, the, the last few months, like I've been assigning quite a lot of reading, um, in addition to like the, the one another's work that they're reading for the workshop. Um, and people are doing it and they're like engaging with it in a way. And that, some of that is just like the accountability of, of a weekly class. Um, the fact that you are paying for like this experience and like, you know, there's that personal accountability of like, if I don't do the reading, I'm like, but it also it demonstrates that people are still excited about it and like have a lot to say about like different texts that they're wrestling with. Um, I, I mean, I think more and more people obviously are going back to work in offices, but it's probably never going to be quite like it used to be. And I like, I really miss the public transit commutes that I used to you know, in Portland, I never was on the bus for that long because I generally live pretty like close in to the center of the city. But still, like you had like 20, 25 minutes if I were going to my office, for example, um, where I could read like a chapter, you know, where it's just like you get on. And if you're lucky, you got the seat you want and you're just like, oh, cool. I'm in the I'm in the seat I like. And now I'm just going to read and I'll like look out when I cross the river because like that's the thing you do when you cross the river, you know, <laughs> No, it's I know, I know, I know. Yeah, um, but I haven't gotten back into riding public transit. So when I go to my office, I either bike or or um, drive and then park and then walk across the river, which is a nice experience. But personally, I'm not. I like I've lost that little segment of my day. You know, when I lived in the Bay Area, I was often commuting like an hour, mm -hmm. and I was reading a ton just purely because of the commute. So I, mm -hmm. I'm sure some people are still doing that and 
it's just a preferable experience for some to filling that hour with like either like maybe they're studying or they're just reading for pleasure. Right. Um, but then, yeah, it's tough. It's like, there's so many shows that you got to keep up with. If, <laughs> you know, if you're, mm-hmm. if you're watching television regularly, mm-hmm. as most of us do, yeah, the default at the end of the night is, is one of the many options with, yeah. with, with the show. That's the default yeah. for most people. Yeah. And like, I'll read, I'll read before going to sleep, but often that's just a few pages. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, it's gotta be, you're carving out time at a, a different point of the day than post dinner, you know? Yeah. I think carving out is the operative phrase. I, I, I think that it's harder to choose to spend time. It's a more of a commitment Yeah, to read a novel is a commitment. And what you were saying about your students and them, you know, doing the reading for your class makes total sense. Personal commitment. I put in the money. I have a goal. I I trust this this teacher, this crazy guy named Michael. He seems to know what he's talking about, giving us good readings. Let's read them. Yeah, I'm, I guess I'm speaking more about more broadly about our our cultural habits and yeah. and our in our desire for salacious information because that's what breaks through the information overload. The yeah. the the extremes of opinion, the louder the voice. Twitter, you're talking about. I agree. There's lots of good stuff on Twitter. Elon Musk is basically setting fire to Twitter as we speak. And who knows what Twitter will be in in a year. Maybe Mastodon will be the thing that people jump to. But as a teacher and as a parent and as a writer and a reader, I think it's it's always something to be slightly nervous about when our culture doesn't read what happens, mm-hmm. what's lost. And I think empathy is lost. I think compassion is lost. The experience of entering another person's mind is um, really complicated and necessary. Yeah. And, I, and, you know. Yeah, I'll say, like, I think um, from what I can tell, like, people are, like, zine culture is quite strong these days. From Joshua, like, whenever he does payouts, like, you have the option of trading some of the money that you're owed in for zine. And I'll always grab a few just, like, whatever looks kind of interesting and picking up a zine as opposed to a book is so much less of a commitment and mm-hmm. it's so fascinating because it's like there's no it's one person who did the whole thing typically you know it's not online so like i feel like when things are not available online you can take more risks in terms of subject matter but it's also very approachable you know they're small and they're shorter than books that gives me some hope that like kids who are getting into zines you know, like, are it's still like exciting and cool, and there's like this punk rock element of just like being like, yeah, this is not the the dominant culture, but it is its own culture. And <clears throat> in the same way that like I feel, you know, I'm still very committed to wearing masks indoors personally. Mm-hmm. Um, that that has become much more of a, like a rebellious feeling act over time, uh, where you're just like, I think the prevailing culture is wrong and like stupid you know like we know what the risks are here and we know what the risks are if you just stop reading is that your brain atrophies and like you become depressed on a very just like a basic level of what can it do to one person versus like what can it do to the whole culture is like most of the time when you haven't picked up a book for a while unless you've been doing like really adventurous stuff it's like not a great sign of your mental health you know like that you're oh yeah you know like you're leaning too heavily on stuff that is not 
require active participation and you're just like a passive you're a scroller you're a scroller yeah which is because you're not you're not doing nothing you're reading text on your phone scrolling through and clicking and and i'm not saying that's all negative i'm but i've I've listened to a, a recent there's a i think she's a stanford researcher around neuroscience and and reading psychology and um there are actually different parts of your brain that are operating and you lose like you're saying um, it's not good for your mental health when you don't read a book uh you actually lose part of your neural circuitry uh if you're not doing the imagining of yeah. of what reading te- reading deeper text actually the deep reading experience there's a different part of your brain that's working versus scrolling or even reading uh you know the first sentence you know there's there's a immersion yeah that happens um neurologically and um i think that's beneficial back to the older you get if you only stick to these routines your brain circuitry changes they talk about yeah. musical instruments and learning a language and travel as ways to keep your brain healthy as you age yeah but a lot of people can't travel a lot of people you know music learning a new instrument is not possible for them at a certain age and what's possible your your phone and your television it's it's also like back to jeremy's father if you don't ever have a comfort with words because you weren't taught how to read and if it's not part of your family structure growing up they become something to be afraid of mm-hmm. almost more than to be comforted by or immersed in Words become this unknown that's a little terrorizing you. And and that's a totally different perspective. And I do think that's part of why the information is being absorbed the way it's being absorbed now, because fewer people are taught from a young age how to read, and they're not immersed in it in their home. They're not interacting enough with their parents when they're young about you talking about your mom and learning to read and that superpower, you know, feeling of being connected to her and reading. And and I had that too. And my my mom read so much to me, and she was a teacher. And I'm very grateful for that. But the obsessive part of me can't handle the internet because it's so much information that I want to learn. Mm-hmm. It's so much that I want to absorb. And then I buy these books, and they I stack them in piles, and I look forward to reading them. And I am a collector of them, but not often enough do I dive into them because of the commitment. So I think we're all, even those of us who have the best of intentions are grappling with how to spend our time, how to carve out our time, how to, where is it a commute? Is it at the end of the night for a few pages? Can you do it before you, you know, actually get up from bed? These are tough decisions that we don't really think about, but they, but they make such a big difference in our lives. I think. Yeah. I feel like even like 15, 20 minutes of dedicated reading time, not a screen. Uh, on a daily basis is like, you know, if you're doing that during your work week and then you have like a weekend that allows for some time, to, like larger amounts of time to set aside. And then you're like, let's say you get a chance to go on a vacation, like often on vacations, that's like when the real reading happens. You know, that's what everybody, oh, beach reads. And yeah, it depends, it depends who's with you on the vacation. <laughs> yeah. Well, the kind of, without a child, the kind of vacations we have, there's usually ample time to to do some reading yeah of either good or trashy books like around this time last year we we like to go snowshoeing to these lookout towers that 
you know, you can rent from the Forest Service, but um, I had brought this real highbrow book that I didn't end up wanting to read. I don't remember what it was because um, it was really lightweight. It was like some rush. I think it was Tolstoy. <laughs> it was like Tolstoy short stories. And I was like, I don't want to read this. And the girl on the train was there, that like real trashy book. And I read the first like half of it while we were at this lookout tower. And I was like, love it. It was such a bad book. And I was just like, but it's still it fun. Guilty, guilty pleasure. Not even, no, it's like a dumb pleasure, you know? Oh, okay. You're like, yeah. why, why, why feel guilty about it? You it's don't like feel guilty. It's still fun. It's why like should a, you feel guilty about reading? It's good for you. Yeah. To a degree. I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and highbrow and lowbrow is another interesting topic. I mean, I'm currently reading a novel that is, I thought it was going to be very highbrow, but very funny. It's actually a college experience, a freshman year college experience reflected on the the author wrote this the, the year after she finished college. And it was basically like a coming of age college experience. This, the idiot? Yeah. Okay. I haven't read it, but I've so. I think her I think her name is I I think I'm pronouncing it right Elif Batuman. She's yeah. Turk she's Turkish and and anyway, I've read her stuff in New Yorker that I liked and um nonfiction and and this is an I one of the novels I've been thinking about and it's not highbrow at all. It got the praise that made me think it was going to be this sort of conceptual, you know, quirky. It's not highbrow at all. It's incredibly funny and observational but it's just what happens to a person when they're a freshman in college and don't know how to live yet yeah so it's a, totally accessible but someone wouldn't pick it up if they were afraid of 400 pages you know someone yeah. wouldn't pick it up if they didn't like a pink cover back to masculinity someone wouldn't pick it up if there was some sort of oh how am i ever going to get through this i have 10 other books i just bought you know yeah so I'm entering her mind and it's making me think about Boston again because around Harvard is making me think about college because freshman year. It's also just making me think about she's talking about the Turkish. There's one one point in it. She's talking about there's a tense in the Turkish language, which is. I want to say it's called the inferential tense or something. Um, and basically, if you don't see something directly with your eyes, you have to use this word that means like it seems or apparently or maybe. So every time you speak about something you don't directly observe, you are subject, you, you have to be aware of your subjectivity. Okay. And she's like, this just changes how everything goes mm-hmm. when this is a tense that you need to use all the time. The language changes how you think, how you live, how you believe things, because okay. you have to directly observe everything for it to actually exist in a factual way, you know, which is in, in, in such an interesting conceptual idea. Um, I've been meaning to check her workout so that's yeah. a good reminder i appreciate you going into all all of these uh topics and and talking about grief and and your parents and uh it's been a pleasure it's been a pleasure connecting again michael yeah this yeah. has been really nice thanks for hope, hope, hope we do it in person sometime soon yeah i Who there's knows? a chance i'm coming down there in february i'll let you know about that okay jesus don't cry You can lie on me, honey. You can combine anything you want. I'll be around. You write about the stars. Each one is a 
to set it some.